Hello again and welcome to Strange Sound. It's me, Joe. It's um, it's actually, uh, as I'm recording this, it's Easter Sunday. How about that? Not that I'm a religious type, but that happens to be the date that sort of puts a stake in it. So you have some idea of, you know, the context of my comments today. Um, that's when I'm recording this. And so anyhow, hope everyone's doing okay. Um, these have been strange days for sure. Uh, I've talked to this before. God knows we, uh, are all kind of isolated, um, riding this storm out in our various undisclosed locations and things are getting weirder and stranger. Um, seems like the the simplest activities are much more complicated than they used to be. Um, going out to a shop to pick stuff up, um, much more complicated than it used to be. And having to anticipate not um, getting out to the grocery store anytime soon. Um, just making very long lists and going out. I'm fortunate enough to have employment where I can work from home. I can't say the same for a lot of the people um, that are riding out this crisis. Um, and uh, our thoughts are with all of them and all those folks that have to, you know, go into work for these vital um, functions, both medical providers and, you know, people who are manning the checkouts and collecting the garbage and doing all the stuff that has to be done come rain or shine. Um, these are rough times. So I'm feeling it. And I hope all of you are staying safe and being well. Anyway, I'm not sure really what I have to talk about this, this time around, except that um, I wanted to do a brief commentary on Bernie Sanders leaving the race um, this week. Uh, disappointment to a lot of progressives and the end of a journey that really began back in 2011 or so when and, and the immediate aftermath of the financial crisis and the... Um, Occupy Wall Street movement and Sanders giving his long speech, his what could be described as kind of a filibuster, but was basically a long speech on the floor of the Senate, uh, where he raised a lot of these issues that he's been raising for decades um, and articulating it in a 
in a way that he would carry forward into his campaign in 2016 and again into the campaign this year. And uh, I, I think it's really hard to overestimate the degree to which he's had an influence on American politics in the last, over the, particularly over the last five, five or six years. Um, he's moved the needle, that's for sure. Uh, that's less than what, it's less than what is needed, but it's certainly necessary. It's necessary, but not sufficient, as they say. Uh, but it's essential what he's done up to now and what his supporters have done up to now is absolutely essential to our survival, I think, and to the survival of the movement. Um, it's not done. Campaigns are temporal things. They pass. And like a lot of progressives, I'm used to disappointment. I'm used to not getting the candidate that I want. I'm used to um, being in a situation where um, the country is not getting the leadership it needs or deserves. And that's obviously the case this year. These are extraordinary circumstances. Interestingly, it's simultaneously we're, we're seeing that we're seeing the necessity of some of the key changes that um, Bernie brought up, um, the need for medicine, medical care, health care as a right, not as a privilege, um, unlinked from employment, particularly um, obvious in this current crisis as millions of people are being thrown out of work and healthcare is so spotty in this country. It's so patchy. We need a lot of what um, Bernie was talking about. And it's clear that we're not going to get it simply by electing someone this fall. But there's still a movement. And we've got work to do. No question about that. So... Where do we go from here? Bernie's out of the race. And we're looking at a campaign that is essentially going to be a race between Joe Biden on the Democratic side and Donald Trump on the Republican side. And that's not someplace anyone wanted to be, but that is where we're going to be. So what do we do? from this point forward. I think it's fairly clear the minimum of what we need to do. If the nominee is going to be Joe Biden, with, his, with all of his problems, all of his baggage, his long history of subservience to power, etc., his evident failings and deficiencies, his cognitive problems that seem relatively clear, just comparing um, his speech patterns from 2016 or so to the present, 
uh, it's worrying. But again, we are faced with a choice between getting him over the top, however we need to do it, and having another four years of Donald Trump. And that, I think, is something that's as close to a no-brainer as anything could possibly be. We simply cannot survive another four years of Trump. Particularly those um, on the edges of our society, the most vulnerable people in society, um, recent immigrants, um, people in the informal economy, people who are suffering right now. Um, We just can't let them have another four years. And I know a lot of my fellow progressives are going to throw their hands up in the air and say, you know, what is the point? Why would we want to throw in with a candidate like Biden? I'm not suggesting that you sort of jump up and down and carry around a sign like sandwich boards or something saying Biden for president. Go ahead if you want to. But (laughs) what I'm suggesting is that we need to be there in November to make sure that Donald Trump doesn't get another four years. That's what we need to do. And the reason why we need to do that is, I think, manifestly clear, just looking back at the last four years. And looking back at the history of the modern history of the United States, the electoral history of the United States, and where we've gone over the last 30 years. And that place, well, I mean, a lot of you have been there with me if you're close to my age or somewhere around that. Um, In any case, um, you know as well as I do, the Republican Party has been getting worse and worse, and worse. From the time of Nixon, through the time of Reagan, through the time of W. Bush, and up to Trump. Every time they come back, they're worse. Every time. And every time they come back, they set the national government in such a way as to preclude the possibility of any progressive legislation or progressive policy in the future. And this is what I mean. You had a narrow victory, really not a victory at all in in the year 2000 for George W. Bush. They took office and he appointed two members of the Supreme Court He maintained the conservative majority. If he hadn't won, there would have been at least a, if not a left majority, at least a left of center majority on the court for the first time since the late 1960s when Justice Berger was um, appointed by um, Richard Nixon, Chief Justice Berger. The court has essentially been in conservative hands ever since. Now, the definition of conservative um, has changed over the years, but 
what the 2000 election did was lock the court down for another stretch of years. Obama won in 2008 and was able to appoint two justices um, that were essentially replacing people in the same ideological um, sector of the court. So he replaced what were nominally two um, relatively liberal justices, even though one was um, one that was being replaced with had been a. Actually, I think they both were appointed by Republicans. Um, John Paul Stevens was re, was appointed by uh, Gerald Ford, and David Souter was appointed by. George H.W. Bush. This is this is not ancient history, but it's it's an important part of what I'm talking about. We had the opportunity towards the end of the Obama administration to replace a conservative justice with someone significantly to the left of that justice, and to reclaim the majority on the Supreme Court for another generation. We didn't get that opportunity because we didn't show up to vote in 2014. And we didn't show up to vote in 2016. Even though the candidates in both 2014 and 2016, the senatorial candidates in 2014 and the presidential and senatorial candidates in 2016 were nothing to crow about, for the most part. Still, what that allowed to have happen was Mitch McConnell blocking the appointment of um, of um, Garland, Justice Garland, uh, who's a uh, circuit court judge, and holding the seat open so that Trump could fill it in 2017 with Neil Gorsuch who is an extreme, extreme conservative. Now, this is a seat that had been vacated by the death of of Scalia, Justice Scalia, Antonin Scalia. Um, unexpected, right? And Mitch McConnell held the seat open, calling it the Biden rule because of some bogus misinterpretation of something that Joe Biden said once. It's actually just the McConnell rule. The McConnell rule is you use your power to gain more power. That's the McConnell rule. And effectively what they did by doing that, even more so than with Kavanaugh, but Kavanaugh sort of put the nail in the coffin. What they did when they appointed Gorsuch when Trump appointed Gorsuch, who had been handed up to him by the um, by the Federalist Society, um, was essentially locked down the court for another generation, put it in extreme conservative hands, and by appointing Kavanaugh, who's I think even younger than Gorsuch, um, ensured that even the sort of the extremely fundamentally conservative Justice Kennedy, who 
was a swing vote on certain issues, um, that that justice would be replaced by someone very much to the right of that justice. And that's who we'll be stuck with for the rest of our lives. Partly because we didn't manage to turn out for a candidate that we didn't like in 2016. And none of us liked, none of us on the left particularly liked Hillary Clinton. I certainly didn't. Had plenty of policy differences with her. Um, I'm talking in terms of policy. I don't have any personal feelings about it at all. It's just, I, I see her, like all politicians, as just a big ball of policy. Right? These are things that she's going to do. These are appointments that she's going to make. Now, I'm talking principally about the Supreme Court, but there are the other courts as well. There are other appointments. Personnel is policy, particularly um, in the executive branch. And this makes a difference. Just imagine if we were to elect a progressive president in 2024, assuming we survive till then. Imagine them trying to implement something like a Green New Deal. It would be knocked down by the courts. The Trump appointees, along with the W. Bush appointees, and, of course, the remnants of... uh, George H.W. Bush, in the form of Clarence Thomas, who is truly one of the most reactionary justices ever to sit on the Supreme Court, they would knock it down. They're going to knock down progressive legislation again and again and again. And it's because we've been failing to show up. The more we fail to show up, the stronger they get. The more they're able to pass anti-voter legislation. The reason why the Voting Rights Act has been gutted is because they've, the Republicans have won elections. And they can only win if we don't vote. It's a simple thing. It's not the only thing that you can do, right? Politics does not end at the voting booth. It simply doesn't. You remain active. You push. And believe me, any Democratic administration is going to be more receptive more receptive to us pushing them than the Trump administration is. The Trump administration or any Republican administration, I don't care who's at the top of it, whether it's W. Bush, Trump, um, Tom Cotton, whoever, they're not going to listen to progressives. They don't care what progressives think. Because that's not part of their coalition. In fact, they get political benefit out of pissing progressives off and putting them off and denigrating them. That gives their base a charge. That benefits them. They're not going to listen to you. You can stand in the street until you rot. They're not going to do anything. The only thing that would stop them is if the entire country stood in their way. And that's just not going to happen. Not in a hurry. 
You can't count on that. That's like counting on the revolution. That's like saying, oh, yeah, well, you know, we'll let Trump win and then the people will rise up. No, I don't think so. What we need to do is take the five minutes it takes to pull that lever, to mark that ballot, and put Biden over the top, and then push his sorry ass for the next four years to do stuff that he really doesn't want to do. I think Bernie Sanders understands this. I mean, now he's full-throatedly endorsed Biden as of this last couple of days. He's still going to keep his name on the ballot and collect some delegates throughout the rest of the primary process. But that's right now he has decided that he's going to be a part of the coalition. And it's a coalition headed by some pretty dim-minded people in a lot of ways. But they need us, and they know it. They can't win without people like us. They simply can't win. They need our votes. And that's a degree of power that we can exercise over this ticket. Now, I don't want to paint too rosy a picture. You know, this is not going to be an easy election. Anything could happen. Anything. It's just possible. And I always, you know, take for granted the fact that I'm paying attention to these matters. People like us pay attention to these matters a lot more closely than most people do. Most people aren't paying attention to this. Most people aren't interested in politics. Now, they sort of vaguely know what's going on, but eh, not really. Now, it's a question of how much they find Trump annoying. It's a question of how much they're just sick of listening to the guy. That's part of it. And it's just possible that, you know, this strategy of keeping Biden out of the way and keeping him out of the public eye, you know, maybe that's exactly what they need to do. Maybe they just want to rely on people's memory of him as being a vaguely supportive vice president of Barack Obama, who is the, you know, last sane president. Not a particularly great president. Disagreed with him on a lot of things. Middle of the road. Kind of lackluster, but still. A lot of people liked him. And they might think, well, you know, they give his vice president a shot. Be a little less chaotic than what we have now. It's possible. It's possible that they'll they'll pull the lever for him or mark the ballot for him. Who knows? All I can say is that those people, we certainly need those people to, whether thoughtlessly or not, go and vote for Joe Biden. But they also need us. They need people like us. They need activists. They need activists to come out to the polls 
and vote. And we need activists to do that and to keep pushing. We need activists there to push Biden to do the right thing. Because it doesn't come naturally. I don't think I have to tell anybody who might be listening to this podcast that Joe Biden's record is more problematic even than Hillary Clinton's record. I mean, Hillary Clinton was um, kind of a ride-along for a lot of the policies of the 1990s. She was first lady. And as such, kind of an advisor to her husband, but still, she didn't have a constitutional office. Joe Biden, much more deeply involved in the development of pernicious policies having to do with criminal justice, um, war and peace, foreign policy, um, judicial nominations, God knows, um, efforts to uh, deconstruct segregation. Uh, He was, you know, on the wrong side of that in some respects. And economic issues as well being the senator from MBNA. Problematic in a lot of ways. No bones about it. We should do this with our eyes wide open. And I'm not saying this to talk people out of pulling that lever or marking that ballot next to the name Joe Biden. I know. It's problematic. It's difficult. You got to kind of hold your nose. But that's all it is. Don't think of your vote as being an expression of your political soul. It's a strategic thing. We need to use our votes strategically. That's it. And there is a difference. And you know it. Think about it. There's a difference. It isn't a big enough difference to be satisfied with, but it's a big enough difference to vote on. So, you know, that's my, that's my soapbox about that. I mean, I, I don't know. I, is anybody going to listen to me? Is anybody going to listen to any of the other progressives saying very similar things right now? And again, this podcast is supposed to be about things that people don't talk about ordinarily. This is something that people are going to talk about a lot. Uh, I'm just adding my two cents because frankly, I'm just, you know, It's just that moment. I want to speak to that moment. And what we need is people to pull together and and focus on the fact that we need, at the very least, to put the Democratic ticket over the top this fall, make sure that we deny Trump a second term convincingly because he's going to dispute the outcome of the election. I guarantee it. And if he wins again, you may as well forget it. I'm not saying give up. You have to keep fighting. But another four years of them in power and God only knows. We've got a tiny window to, cl- to crawl through here. Um, 
this is the uh, this is practically our last chance, right? I know you've heard it before. Every election is like the most important election of our lifetimes. They keep saying it over and over again. It kind of devalues it a little bit, but still. This one is pretty crucial. We need to win this one. So, maybe you didn't hear it here first, but you heard it here. Um, keep the faith. Don't get discouraged. Do what you gotta do. And, uh, Take care of yourself out there. That's all I got to say about this. I'd like to hear what you have to say. If you go to my Anchor site, anchor.fm slash strange sound, you can actually leave a voicemail. Um, You can also reach out to me by email um, and by... um, through Twitter, other means, there's ways to get in touch with me. So let me know what you think. If you want to push back against this, that's great. Go ahead. Uh, record a voicemail. I'll play it on the air. I'd be happy to make this into a conversation. Share what you have to say. I'd love to hear it. Anyway, thanks very much. I'll see you next time. Take care out there.